We are uh, in the middle of studying the book of Acts. It's the second part of a guy that was a doctor named Luke's account of the ongoing work of Jesus, now not while he was physically on earth, but through this thing called a church. Acts chapter 2 actually gives us the inauguration of the church. Now before we jump into today's text, we've entitled the series Uncommon because God does an uncommon work through a very common people that many of you think would be reckless. He gives the keys to the kingdom to a group of people that just days prior have been cowards in hiding and saving themselves over the cost of getting to stand with Jesus. And I relate a lot to the disciples and their dysfunction because I have good intentions, but I often underdeliver on those intentions. How many of you have good intentions, but you often underdeliver on your good intentions? Good. I'm glad you're honest. Everybody else is a liar. You just lied in church. I mean, there's lying and there's lying in church. I'm just going to throw out there that... I, uh, I always have good intentions, but I'm surprised at how sinful I can be. Uh, this past weekend, I got back into the routine of high school football in the South, which is a different beast than high school football in California and other places. It's not the same. I mean, people will, will fight you and kill you at a Giants-Dodgers games, but here, they will kill you in Woodruff at a Woodruff game. I mean, that's just kind of the way it works, right? Like, we, we, we support the Wolverines, and if you don't, you shouldn't let the sun hit you on the way out as it sets on this town. Uh, and so we went to the Dorman game. My brother-in-law is the assistant basketball coach over there. We were going to spend some family time, and, and it's not high school. It, it's a university over there. It's it's like Clemson Jr. Like, it's just, it's, it's massive, and the traffic is bad. And, and, and people were cutting me off that had just gotten their learner's permit, clearly. And, and the, people were walking in things that weren't crosswalks. And in the back seat, my beautiful daughter, Nora, who's my youngest, and my nephew, Harrison, are just having the time of their lives tearing up my newly detailed car. And what began to surface was not of God. Maybe you can relate. You've had a moment where you said things, did things that you couldn't believe you did. And in the middle of that, recognize that I am completely inadequate to live this Christian life. That I lack in this moment the things needed to represent the character of Christ to those that are around me. For whatever reason in the flesh, you begin to not see people as a people of value, but you begin to see them as obstacles in the way. You begin to play weird games of point systems of what would happen if I hit that car that just got in front of me and went to Wanda from Fried Green Tomatoes, which only about half of you have probably seen or even know. But, but nonetheless, just know that there's a moment where you lose it. I don't know what it is, but you lose it, and it ain't Jesus that comes out of it in that moment. Well, the disciples have all lost it just 50 days prior to Acts chapter 2. Peter said he would never lose it. That even if it came to the point of death, that he would stand with Jesus and die. Yet, moments later, over a charcoal fire, the scripture tells us, he begins to be identified as someone who's following Jesus, or with Jesus. And what I love about the text is Peter was with Jesus, but a note comes in Mark's gospel where it says, and Peter was following Jesus at a distance. See, some of you, you come into church and you're with Jesus. That's your intent. You leave here with the intent of leaving with Jesus. But then you get into your work week and your other compartments of life 
and you begin to move from being with Jesus to following Jesus at a distance. It's not that Jesus isn't real. It's not that you don't love Jesus. It's just that you're not really loud about it. You're not going to be the first to bring it up. If someone else points out that you're a Christian, then of course you admit to it, but you're not going to lead in with or look for an opportunity to be evangelistic or to be Christ-filled or to uh, represent Jesus in the life of others. It's just Jesus at a distance, which never goes well. See, for some of you, the problems we have have nothing to do with Sundays. They have everything to do with what happens when you're not here with the uh, ecclesia, the gathering of believers, where you begin to just become a wildflower when it comes to your faith, and silent where you should be standing and representing the gospel of Jesus. Now, I just gave you one of the famous ought-tos of the faith, meaning every single one of you who follow Jesus know you ought to represent Jesus, tell others about Jesus, but we just don't do it. Which then leads to discouragement, because what a lot of us hear when we hear an ought-to is try harder, work harder, and that is the most anti-gospel thing I could ever say to you. The gospel is not work and try. The gospel is his work, it's done, submit. You see, what we get in Acts 2 is how the Christian life works. It's a story of the Holy Spirit coming and doing through a group of cowards something that was uncommon. They were running and hiding in fear Yet by the end of Acts 2, they're standing in public spaces where Jesus, 50 days prior, had been arrested, proclaiming the gospel without fear. And here's what I want you to know. You don't go from living in fear to living without fear in this situation apart from something that's not native to you bringing it out of you. Meaning, let me be clear, the Christian life was not native to the disciples. They believed the right things about Jesus, but they didn't know how to live the right way apart from Jesus. So mental ascent can make you understand how you need Christ, but without Christ, by His Holy Spirit in you, the Christian life is not a possibility through you. You need help. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and let them know. Hey, neighbor, you need help. Now, if everyone in the room just told you you need help, That might be a sign from God. (laughs) You need help. The Christian life is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God can do through you. Colossians chapter 1 says the hope of glory in the Christian life is Christ in you. Not you for God. Christ in you. You, the hope of glory. This this is what it's all about, folks. It's about you having recognized your need of Jesus, now living a life that doesn't leave or drift away from a dependency on Jesus. So that as you abide in him and he in you, you can bear much fruit. For apart from him, you can do nothing. Nothing Nothing in Greek means nothing. In Hebrew, it means nothing. In Latin, it means nothing. And I think in English, it still means Nothing. nothing. You see, the fruit speaks to the root. And when we don't bear the fruit of Christ, it's not because you need to try harder. It needs to be that you abide deeper. The point isn't try harder. It's abide deeper. The point isn't like 
pick up your boots and put them on and go to work. No, it's, it's get low. <laughs> Grab tight. Don't let go. Let Jesus, the, the presence of him, the work that he desires to do, wreck your routine and your life and your perspective on things. Let, let him lead you into the scary places called faith spaces where if he doesn't show up, you will be ruined and short-supplied. But when he shows up, he'll get glory, which is what the Christian life is actually about. Acts 2, the disciples are waiting because they're common. But something uncommon is about to make them an uncommon people. Uh, cowards are about to become witnesses. And something magnificent happens at the inauguration of the church as we look at the first fruits of the Christian life. Look at it with me. On the day of Pentecost, that's the when. Pentecost is one of the Jewish festivals. It came 50 days after Passover. So what you need to understand is that, um, here, really quick, what's the point of Genesis? Creation, that's in there. What else? Genesis, come on. It's the beginning, okay, keep going. What else is in there? Okay, Adam and Eve. Okay, all these things are true. Ready? Point of Genesis is that Jesus is coming. He will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel. Jesus is coming. Okay? Exodus. What's the point of Exodus? Some of you are quick. <laughs> the point of Exodus is Jesus is coming. All the festivals, all the work, it, it's culminating in this Messiah that's coming. Leviticus, the law, the one y'all read every year frequently with joy. Jesus is coming, and he's the fulfillment of the law because you and I are condemned under the law. We need to be set free from it. It's not the law that is bad, but it is us that cannot keep the law. We don't keep our word. We over-communicate what we think we can do and under-deliver when we actually do it. Therefore, we need a Messiah, a Savior that can save us from ourselves. Jesus is coming. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers? Jesus is coming. Deuteronomy? Joshua? You, you, you can't go through the Old Testament without understanding Jesus coming. So, so here's, here's the question. The festivals, all, they had lots of festivals. This was a festival of harvest. It celebrated the first fruits of the New Year harvest. Think about this. Fifty days after the resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection are empowered so that first fruits of the church can be born. By the end of Acts 2, we go from 120 believers to around 3,000 plus believers in Jerusalem. Right? So we get a place. The place is, during the time of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, believers were meeting together in one place. That's where we left them in chapter 1. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. Now, what were the disciples waiting on? The Holy Spirit, the helper, okay? They're waiting on a helper. So they're together, they're waiting so they don't want to, this is what we talked about last week, they don't want to drift in their wait from God. They don't want to wander away from God in their waiting, but they want to be expectant when God comes in the waiting. God's worth the wait in your life. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, it's going to require in seasons of your life for you to allow him to work while you're still 
rooting in the fact that he is God and that his name will be exalted in the nations. That's in the book of Psalms. So you've got to be still, and I'm not good at being still. I like to wander not towards God, but I often drift away from God, coming up with backup plans if God doesn't come through in my life, which he never asked me to build. So the idea is that they're waiting in expectation that God's going to come. They don't know what it's going to look like when it comes, but then suddenly it happens. What they were powerless to do, they immediately become empowered to do. And there's three things about the coming of the Holy Spirit that we see. Number one, it's audible. It's a noise that shook whatever they had been in in routine since Jesus' ascension, which was likely around 10 days prior. So they've gathered for 10 days, and it's getting normal. It's getting normal. And all of a sudden, something that's not normal begins to happen. I've been praying for rain all week. Any of you been with me on that camp? Like, my grass is crunchy when I walk on it. I don't like crunchy grass. I like grass that you can be barefoot on, and it doesn't stab you and make you have to go to the yard. So I want rain. You know, I've been singing, let it rain, like hoping, like, let it rain, Lord. And we got no rain all last week. No rain. Nothing in my house. We didn't get a, not, a, not a stitch of rain, as my grandmother would say. We didn't get a stitch. My granddaddy, right by the house we just built, put up a old bird uh, thing. And he would make gourds. He'd cut holes in them, paint them, put the things up there. And we left the pole up because it reminds me of my granddad. But it's also just a massive lightning rod in a field. <laughs> that now my house is uniquely close to. Well, God hears prayers. Anyone know God answers prayers? Can we get a testimony about it? Yeah, praise God. Okay, about 3.30 this morning. We got a warning shot. Boom. You know what I'm talking about if you've been here long in the South. Some of y'all aren't from here, and you, you didn't know. You didn't understand, like, when, th thunderstorms. You're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've been. No, you haven't. <laughs> Some are like, we have earthquakes in California. That's scary. No, 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 no. You ever have a thunderquake? Because that's what we have here. It thunders, and the ground <laughs> shakes over and over again. Sit up in your bed, you begin praying in tongues. You even know you had the gift. And you're like, oh, that's right, God. That was not a necessary detail. Um, so it was a warning shot. But then apparently something hit the pole. And it shook the entire house. I'm talking like, like brick ain't supposed to like that. I set up and it shook me out of my sleep. Here's my point. The disciples are in a routine at this point, and the Holy Spirit comes and audibly shakes them out of their routine. It disturbs them. It, it, it announces and lets them know something's about to change in their life. Now, th this happens all over Scripture in, in various ways. Sometimes it's extremely disruptive, and sometimes it's gentle. Like, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament in 1 Kings, we get the story of Elijah, and he goes to the bell priest and tells them to build an altar, and he builds an altar, and then the bell priest's altar doesn't have fire from heaven that comes and lights it, but they drench uh, Elijah's uh, altar in water. Fire comes from heaven. It ignites it. Jezebel gets mad, says she's going to kill him. He gets discouraged, runs all the way to a mountain, hopes that he's going to die. He's over it. He's depressed. And in the middle of that, an angel comes and says, the Lord's going to pass by you. And then we hear a big, loud, rushing wind comes, and then fire comes, and the ground shook. But God wasn't in any of the noise, because sometimes the way that God disrupts you in a noisy world is he gets silent. Almost like a gentle breeze that comes on the mountainside like a whisper 
and he refreshes and meets with Elijah. So, so here's what I want you to know. It's not that it's volume. It's that it's disruptive. When the Holy Spirit comes, it disrupts the routine. Sometimes it's a gentle whisper. Other times, like in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, we get the story in verses 9 to 14 where uh, they prophesy over the bones to come alive. And then a louder rushing wind comes as a sign of the Spirit coming to bring life to the dry bones in the valley. So the Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes, it's audible. It shakes it up. I've shared it first service. I think I should share it this service too. I don't always, if you haven't figured it out yet, I don't preach the same sermons I have the same notes, it just comes out different in every sermon, okay? So it like changes from time to time um, as I'm like trying to preach the Bible to you. And when you don't say amen and stuff like that, it just gets longer and longer. It's like it, it really... <laughs> Thank you. Your lunch just got closer. Um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. Oh. This week, over the last like week and a half, okay, I've had four, four people that have come up to me and they give me a huge compliment, but I didn't know it was a compliment at first. They said to me, I hate this church. And I was like, huh, why? And, and in various ways, this is what I was told. It's like a week and a half now, four times this happened. I used to be able to come here and keep it together. Like I could just be complicit, complacent, like I could, could hear it, and I'm like, yeah, that's good, and nothing changed. I hate it here because it's painful. I come here, and like there's stuff inside of me that the Holy Spirit through the Word just continues to stir up, and I, I can't not sit here and not change. And I hate it because it hurts. I have one tell me it cuts me deep. And I love it now, but I hate it. <laughs> Can you relate to the Word of God in that way? That when you really get the word, like you, you, you love it, but at the same time it's like, gosh, God, this hurts. When the Spirit of God comes, you love it. It's what we want. We want the Lord to come, refresh us, reignite a passion that has no boundaries to it in our allegiance to you, God. But then it comes and it's like, oh, but i got to let go of that. And like, this is not going to be the same and it doesn't look the way I thought it was going to look. And I don't know how this, like, I, maybe this will work. Maybe it won't. Like, what's going to happen? Like, maybe you can understand that, right? The Lord comes and he begins to move and it shakes everything up within you. So it's audible. Number one, verse two, we see that. Number verse three and four, we see that it's visible. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was, here's the word, filled. Now, that's a major theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now, here's my question. Were the disciples, before this moment, believers in Jesus? Yeah. Right? I mean, Peter's already confessed Christ around the fire. Right? Now, Romans chapter 8 gives us some interesting theology about the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 teaches us That if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. It's not a two-time incident, meaning like you believe in Jesus and then later you receive the Holy Spirit. It's instead you, in the profession of faith, Romans 9, when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus is raised from the dead, then he is faithful and just to forgive you all of your sins. So you come to the point of recognizing, I need Jesus, I'm desperate in need of him, and you confess with your mouth that you need him to come into your life and forgive you. He forgives you and fills you with the Spirit of God, but for many of us it never activates. It's dormant. 
See, what's going on before Pentecost, it's not that the presence of God wasn't there. It's that it's not been activated within them. Now, I could show this to you in other places. Some of you are like, well, what about Acts 19? Because in Acts 19, a few Bible nerds in the room, you know that there's a group of believers in Ephesus who had heard John's preaching and teaching, which was about a baptism of repentance, but they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit, so they knew who Jesus was because of John's preaching and teaching and disciples that had scattered and told them, but they had yet to hear about what Jesus does after salvation to empower them to live in a way that they had not lived before. And so Paul lays his hands on them, and they're filled and receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, filled is Paul's favorite word to describe the work of the Spirit that you'll see. And he encourages in Ephesians and other places for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He comes to the point of speaking to all the, the believers in Corinth, and he says, Do you not know, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 4, that your body is the temple of God? That's not to say get on a keto diet and like lift weights. That's to say that the, the Spirit of God lives in you. Even if the fruit of God isn't being experienced through you, at the point of salvation, not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, God gives you the gift of his spirit. And this is how the Christian life, which is impossible in your flesh, is made possible by his spirit. There's a visible thing that happens. A transformation that begins to take place as the Holy Spirit is activated within them. It's reverse Babel. You go all the way back to the Old Testament and the people, they come together to overthrow God. But now through Christ, the people come together to worship God and honor God. God. Look at what he goes and says. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. All right, all the Baptists got nervous. All my Pentecostal friends are like, finally! Been waiting on this one. Slow down, thunder. Let's talk about it. The Holy Spirit in this gift of speaking in tongues is in the Bible. It's not a denomination's job to give their opinion. It's our job to understand and wrestle within the context of the Scriptures. And what we get if we study cover to cover what's going on are several understandings about this unique outworking of the Holy Spirit. In this case, it gives them the ability to do what? Speak other languages. So they're, they're speaking non-native languages. We know that they're untrained, uneducated followers of God. This is not something they derive from their own ability. It's a unique gift from the Spirit that's enabling them to be evangelistic and communicate the gospel to people in their native language the, uh, in a way that they've never heard it before, which is why the audience marvels at what's going on. So we do know that there is a working of the Holy Spirit that enables people who are not native to a community or to a group of people to speak the gospel to that people, not for the edification themselves to be a super warrior Christian, but so that the gospel can go to the nations, which is what God's always behind and the Spirit of God has come to ensure will be done. Some of you are like, well, that doesn't happen anymore. I believe that everything ceased. Well, you have two camps. A lot of people believe that at the canonization of Scripture, the more extravagant works of God ceased in their existence. Some believe that what God did yesterday, He still does today. And we may not experience it in the same way that they did then or as frequent or whatever we want to describe it. But nonetheless, God still does that stuff today. At this church, we lean in the camp of continuationism with what I would call a seatbelt. Continuationism means we believe that the Holy Spirit's at work, that God does 
miraculous, powerful things through the believer. That he gifts every believer with spiritual gifts to build up the body and to proclaim the gospel evangelistically to the community that are around them. That that continues. However, we are not, what I mean by the seatbelt, we are not on the camp of we're just going to get weird and call everything holy from the spirit when some spirits ain't holy and it ain't of God because it's about the glorification of man and the pride of the platform and them being seen and it has nothing to do with God yet we call that being spirit filled and I would just say wrong spirit you see the the scriptures say we should test the spirits by what by the word of God and so if what we're doing and calling of the spirit actually is contradicting the word of God then it's not an outworking of the Holy Spirit. It's demonic. Sit down, shut up, and humble yourself. Instead, what we do is we're like, well, people abuse the spiritual, the spiritual, the Holy Spirit, so we're just going to go over here to camp. We never look for, lean on, depend in the Spirit, which leads to a carnal life that's powerless. But it's safe because it makes us comfortable. It's safe because it doesn't disrupt us in the way that we live. It's safe because we can be lukewarm and love it with a bunch of other people who are never going to talk about us being lukewarm and loving it because they're just as lukewarm as we are. And on the flip side, you got another group that are like, can we just sing and take some laps around here more? And can, I got a word. Can I get on stage? No, you can't. No. I want you to be everything you are in the Spirit of God. But, but Paul has to come later and he teaches about the outworking of this gift because it gets abused. We see it in various forms. We see the Holy Spirit equipping a group of people here to speak non-native languages for the sake of the gospel. We know that there's this thing called Galassalil, which is why some theologians believe that the crowd was kind of like trying to figure out what was going on because for the first time the disciples were experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit and they got a little excited to the point that people were getting uncomfortable and they're going like, are they drunk? We'll talk about that more in a minute. So we know that there's a private prayer language that builds up the believer. That's a way of fellowshipping with God that he has given you, and that's been instructed to be used in private. And when it is used in public, in a prophetic sense, it's to be done with a translator. These are the outworkings of the gift of tongues. It, meaning when someone has been given by the Spirit, the gift of tongues to communicate something for the edification of the people in the room, that there will also be, if God's in it, a translator that is ready to communicate and articulate what the person is saying for the benefit of the church. And if it's not of or for the benefit of the church, it's not the right spirit and they tell them to sit down. They like to make mountains out of this. And divide up into denominations. And I'm just looking at the Bible and I'm going, man, what, what are we doing? Why, what, when did we become God's editors instead of his messengers? And wh when was this supposed to just be about you being able to understand and be comfortable with all of it? The Bible's not about you being like, oh, that, that makes sense to me. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit, what he does in you doesn't make sense. That's the point. It's, it, it, it's not, it's abnormal to what you are capable of doing. That's the whole idea. That's the Christian life. It's audible, it's visible, and it's for the sake of evangelism so that this diverse crowd is drawn in to hear and see 
the gospel. So we see the outworking of the Spirit in multiple ways within the text. It comes visibly, and the purpose of it is not so that Pete and the boys can get a new job. It's so that the power of God and the good news of the gospel can go forward. Look at verse 5. It says this, At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, a.k.a. they don't speak my language there. At best, there's one street where they speak my language on it, and then there's a whole lot of other streets where they don't speak my language, because y'all know how that's how we do towns, right? What's that area over there in Berea? Oh, that's where you need to speak Spanish. Some of you haven't been to Berea lately, but, but nonetheless. These people are all from Galilee. Look, look at what God does here. Verse 8. And yet, we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, yep, uh, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of, of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from, wait, use your, use your Bible brain, Acts 1. You'll be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The book ends in Rome. What was the ends of the earth historically? What's there at the beginning? The disciples go to Rome in the ending, but God brings Rome in the beginning. What is God doing? This, this is how God, oh, I want you to get this. God has given you influence somewhere in this world. It may not be significant to you. It may not be huge to you. It may not be a big deal to you. It may not get a lot of likes on Instagram. It may not get a lot of whatever you get on TikTok or whatever. But you have a bridge, an influence into a group of people. God draws a diverse group of people because they bridge into subcultures that need the gospel. And they hear the gospel in their native tongue so that they can now be bridge builders of the gospel into these other cultures and places. This is why I'm such a big advocate of a diverse church. You see, from the get-go, God is making it clear that the gospel is for everyone, that the gospel and Jesus' invitation is for all people. It's one of my favorite points that I see uh, in this text. What we see are people from all over the place, and it doesn't matter their geography, whether they're from there or they're new there, whether they're a mainlander or an island boy or whatever in between, whether they're... Whether, sorry, whether they're a desert dweller or a mountain person, the gospel is for them. It doesn't matter your language, whether you're Arabic, Greek, or any other language, the gospel is for you. It doesn't matter what culture or ethnicity or what your economic status is, the gospel is for you. See, God is bringing together a people who would not be a people apart from him, and he's making them the only distinct thing that makes sense for why they would be together. That's what church is supposed to be. If everyone lives on your street, votes the way that you vote, looks the way that you look, it might not be a church. It might be a country club. But I like my country club. You don't even pay your dues to this country club. So take your comfort and your nighty and take that somewhere else. Because this is about a diverse people that have been given a unique and powerful gospel. So that in the end, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around the throne of God in a heavenly assembly that will not end. Oh, you, you, you're going to do the Dougie. You, you're going to dance. 
You're going to shout. Some of you are like, I don't like singing. You will in heaven. This is the beauty of the gospel. The Christian life is a group of, un, of common people who are given the uncommon presence of the Holy Spirit that makes them distinct and empowered for bold witness to everyone that is around them. The work of the Spirit was not understood then. It's still not understood now. You look at the text, it goes on in verse uh, 13, and it says this, as they're preaching and witnessing, both the Jews and the converts from Judaism and Cretans and Arabs all hear those people speak in their own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. This is what we hear a lot. We're amazed at what God's doing and we're perplexed because it's a barefoot dude that God's working through. Yeah, common people, uncommon presence of God at work, right? We're amazed because we online saw it. It looked really big. It's really small, but God, it's, God's doing big things through, through it. We don't really understand. Stand it. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. Peter, sensing the lead in to the intro of the first sermon that will be preached in church, stands up and gives the greatest opening line to any sermon that's ever been written. Verse 14. It says, We're not drunk. Essentially, it's too early. <laughs> Peter stepped forward and the 11 apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. Some of you are assuming 9 o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Here's why I love this. I used to make that a joke, and now I think I get it. it, like, it like, I don't often say, like, I, in my study, like, like, I've been preaching for 19 years. I know, I know, I age well. Um, <laughs> that was funny. Like, like, that was your invitation before it got serious. That was, that was your invitation. Um, so it's not often that at this point with education and everything else that I'm, I just am gobsmacked by something, but, but I... I this stopped me in my tracks. It's such a weird line. God authored it. Put it in scripture. Why? All the way back in the New Testament before we ever got to this moment, Jesus was speaking about the work that he was going to do. And he used the illustration of new wine. And he said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. For if you do, the wineskin will tear. Instead, you put new wine in new wine skins. It's kind of an interesting statement, right? Now, whenever you drink adult beverages, they often are referred to as this thing called what? Spirits. Use your brain, okay? So the new wines come. The Holy Spirit's empowering the disciples to do something that they have no ability to do apart from the Holy Spirit. And, and, and in this moment, the crowd comes and they say, it must be one of those spirits that are in them. And Peter says, no, 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 no. This is not an unholy spirit. This is the spirit of God. Look, J. Oswald Sanders, who was the president of the Chinese Inland Mission, said it this way. They were intoxicated, not with the devil's stimulant, but with divine stimulus. 
men usually resort to stimulants because they are conscious of inadequacy and inability to cope with the exogenesis of life. They must have some external stimulus. And all of you know that, right? A lot of you are like, I know I need a, I need relief. I need me time. I need something that helps me cope with whatever environment I'm in. I, I need extra. And for some of you, it's, you know, like looking like the best mom ever on Instagram. And that's your stimulant. It's the approval of people. That's your stimulant. It's looking at the bank account and the sense of satisfaction of going, we did that. That's your stimulant. For, for some of you, it's alcohol. You come home and the only way you can unwind is if you have a stimulant. And so you consume. For some of you, it's an addiction or a drug. It's the only way you can turn the mind off because you know you need relief and you need a stimulant to help. You see, God knows this too. He knows you need help. Therefore, he gave you the only stimulant that could help. All other stimulants you find outside of the Spirit of God, they can numb, but they cannot heal. It's only the Spirit of God. Well, this is the preaching point. It's only the Spirit of God that can heal. The stimulant you need is not a new relationship. It's not more money. It's not more intoxication. It's not more partying. It's not more vacations. It's not more, more in the savings account or a bigger house. It's not a better... Uh, following on social media, the, the, the stimulant you need is what God's given, and He's given you His Spirit so that in Him you would be empowered to live what you were incapable of living beforehand. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says it this way. This is Paul's encouragement. He said it several times throughout the New Testament. Don't be drunk with those spirits because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the... Oh, man. In John chapter 20, before Jesus uh, ascends to the Father, before we get to Acts 2 and Pentecost, he comes and meets with the disciples. And in John 20, look at what it says. Look at it with me, connecting the dots. John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he, look at this, breathed on them. And said, what? Okay. In order to receive, they had to... They had to breathe it in. And in order to receive more, what did they have to do? They had to breathe them out. The name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Jesus comes and he gives them what they need. They need power to save them from themselves. He breathes on them, but in order for them to have that power, they have to receive it. Here's my point. Some of you have had an Easter, but you've never had a Pentecost. You know good theology. You know what you're supposed to believe. You can, you can articulate it well. You perhaps have led others to be followers of Jesus. But you're often overwhelmed at your weakness, discouraged in your failure. Instead of triumphant, instead of triumphant, you walked defeated with your head hung low. 
Not because you don't have the Holy Spirit, but it's never been activated within you. And I'm not talking about the gift of tongues, so just because you don't, like, I, that's not my gift. That's not, that's not everything. Hospitality is a gift of the Spirit. Teaching is a gift of the Spirit. Prayer is a gift of the Spirit. Uncommon faith is a gift of the Spirit. You, you have the Spirit of God alive in you so that you would be active, not by your power, but by the power of the Spirit so that as a people, we could be a witness that causes a disturbance for the glory of God. You know, the number one, the, the only thing they get arrested for from this point forward is public disturbance because of the work of God in their presence. Oh God, may it be so. May, may Four Points Church be filled with believers who not only have had an Easter, but they've experienced a Pentecost, and they go out in the name of Jesus, not for their personal gain, but for the gain of the kingdom, disturb the public for the glory of God. Mm. Some of you are tired and worn out. Here's my question. When's the last time you breathed in? I got nothing to give. Breathe in. I'm tired and I'm spent. Breathe in. And as he supplies, breathe out and be the light and darkness that God has called you to be. The salt to the earth that he says you are. The people of God marked by the spirit of God, producing the fruit of God, because the fruit speaks to deep, growing roots abiding in the presence of God. we got several people that are going to get baptized in the next few minutes. As we stand, if you are getting baptized, you're going to head out that double door or that single door back there on my left. There's a group of volunteers that are there waiting to help you get changed and get around here so that you can profess Jesus as your Lord and leader. If that's something that you need to do, we invite people on the spot to do what God's telling you to do. And for some of you, you may need to get baptized. We had two people signed up in first service. A lady was there. We talked with her. She said, man, I just feel like God's telling me this is what I need to do, and I've not done it. She walked out the back, got into uh, a change of clothes. We have shorts. We have towels. We'll make you look good at whatever Mexican restaurant you're going to after this. And she came around and she got baptized. We prioritize obedience in this place. And we want you to be obedient. So some of you, obedience is you need to go out that double door, get some shorts, get a shirt, get baptized, and profess Jesus publicly. Stop hiding in silence and publicly, visibly, begin professing Jesus closely, not at a distance, that he is your Lord and your leader. And for some of you, that's the first step you need to take. For others, others of you, you need to come to the altar and pray. We want to pray with you. We have a prayer team that'll be here to meet with you and pray over you. For many of you, you're like, how do I move from this person that knows Jesus is God, but lives in utter powerlessness? I want the Spirit. I want to be filled. I want every good gift He has. Well, it's so practical that it's often missed. Luke 9, 23, before we ever get to Pentecost, Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself daily. Daily, you breathe in what he supplies and you're filled. Daily, you breathe out what he gives and people are blessed and the gospel goes forward. What's your role? Take up your cross. Die to yourself and your will and your volition that already thinks you've got next week figured out. I mean, in your plan, some of you have planned out the Holy Spirit 
when he can move and when he can't move next week. He is not going to abide by your calendaring. You calendar all you want, hold it up to him. He goes, oh, isn't that cute? He's not on your agenda. Some of you want a revival. You want a revival? You want a revival in your life and in your family and in your community and the church? We have no control over when it comes. Zero. All we do is we stay close, wait, and cry out. I've experienced one. A couple years ago, 2018, 485 people got baptized in eight months. We went eight months straight of baptizing people. We would drive up to church. This is how you know you're in revival. We'd drive up to church, and there's this, there, I remember there was a college couple. Uh, they were living together, doing a lot of bad things. And they said, last night, we were living together. We were about to do something we know we aren't supposed to do. And all of a sudden, we felt like we needed Jesus to save us. We had this fear come over us that we were in sin, and we needed help. And so we came here because we heard this is where you come if you need Jesus. She's like, can, they're like, can you help us? And I'm like, I can. They're like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the pastor. They've lost it out of control, God doing work. I want that in this place. My prayer is that it begins today in you and in me. So if you need prayer, if you need to give your life to Jesus, you come forward. If you need to be baptized, you go back into the back. You move as the Lord leads. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond. Come on. Let's sing.